Surinder Deho, welcoming you to another episode of Indie Stories. This week's selection, The Death of Mahatma Gandhi, is a story like no other because it's based on the eyewitness account of someone who saw it all. Nayantara Sagal, the distinguished novelist, is a member of the Nehru Gandhi family. Her mother, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, Jawaharlal Nehru's sister, was the eighth president of the UN General Assembly, besides being a governor and a member of parliament. Nayantara is Pandit Nehru's niece and Indira Gandhi's cousin. She earned her bachelor's degree from the prestigious Wellesley College in 1947 and has devoted her life to writing. She has published about a dozen novels besides two memoirs and other books. As an outspoken defender of human rights and democracy, she had a falling out with her cousin Indira Gandhi and Nayantara penned two books criticizing Indra's authoritative style of leadership. Indra on her side retaliated when she cancelled Nayantara's appointment as India's ambassador to Italy. Born in 1927, Nayantara leads an active life and lives in the same house in Dehradun where she has spent the better part of her life. This story is excerpted from her memoir, Prison and Chocolate Cake, published in 1954. Here we go. Nain Sagal, The Death of Mahatma Gandhi Will anyone ever understand the reason why Gandhiji was shot or for that matter, Christ crucified or Socrates condemned to death. Can madness of this sort have been dictated by sanity? Can it have had any meaning except to make those who lived after them bitterly repent the crimes of their fellow human beings? Who stood to gain by Gandhiji's death? not the assassin, because he was caught, tried, and eventually hanged. Not the enemies of Gandhiji's teachings, because his death threw the searchlight on his message more powerfully than ever before. In his lifetime, he had been called a saint. His martyrdom crowned him with an even more glorious immortality. To ask the reason why he was killed is to probe a mystery that has no beginning. The whys of history are seldom answered. Indi and I were having tea at home on the evening of 30th January 1948 when we were summoned to Birla House by an urgent telephone call saying that Gandhiji had been shot on his way to a prayer meeting. Shock numbed us to all sensation as we got into the car 
had hurried to him. The others, his relatives and followers, gathered around his body in his room at Birla House, seemed to be affected the same way. There was silence in the room as Gandhiji breathed his last. Mamu received the news at a meeting and arrived at the scene soon after us. I do not think that as he strode into the room, tense with anxiety at the news he had been given, he realized that Gandhiji had passed away. I do not think he believed that Gandhiji could die so suddenly, so wordlessly, leaving him alone at the time when he needed advice and help more than ever before. The group of people in the room who had stood aside to let Mamu stride in washed with, without a sound as he knelt beside the beloved body and forgot himself in his grief for a moment. But what had happened was too colossal a phenomenon to permit the luxury of grief. When Mamu rose to his feet, he had regained complete self-control and through the ordeal of loneliness and personal loss which was to follow in the days to come, he was never again to show a vestige of it. Those who could bear to look at his face during those days saw a strange white mask through which only the eyes revealed stark anguish. Word of the assassination had leaped through Delhi like a flame fanned by wind. For soon, dumb, stricken hordes of men and women had collected like sentinels around Birla House, and out of every window one could see a brown blur of faces. They did not make a sound, and an unnatural silence reigned. It was as if the earth and time stood still for those few minutes. That was in the beginning when they were too stunned to speak. Later they clamored wildly, shouting, crying and jostling one another in a stampede to break into the house. They became a little calmer when it was announced that they would be allowed to file past Gandhiji's body and see it before the funeral on the following day. Some officials were in favor of embalming the body so that it would be preserved for at least a few days and people from all over India might have the opportunity to pay their last respects to it before it was cremated. But Gandhiji, foreseeing the possibility of some such occurrence, had always said that he did not wish his body to be preserved after his death for any reason at all. It is significant that when one is faced with the shock of a loved one's death, one's first question is not, where has he gone? What has become of him? This thought dawns later with the pain, but the first one whimpers, what will become of me now that he has left me? This was surely the question uppermost in the hearts of the mourning multitudes, for their expressions were those of lost children. It was a question in many of our hearts as we sat, still shocked 
still unbelieving, listening to Mamu's broadcast, telling the people of India that their Bapu was no more. Into that climate of fear and uncertainty, Mrs. Sarojini Naidu came the next morning from the UP where she was governor. Her face was haggard and her eyes glossy with unshed tears, but his spirit was as strong as ever. What is all the snivelling about? she demanded harshly. Would you rather he had died of decrypt old age or indigestion? This was the only death great enough for him. Gandhiji's funeral was to take place the day after his death and hours in advance people lined the route his procession was to follow for it had been announced over the radio by Mamu. It was a route that would require innumerable arrangements and Mamu and others had sat up nearly all night to make them. In the morning we were told that there would be a few conveyances for those among us who felt they could not walk the entire distance. Padmasi spoke for all of us when she said simply, We will walk. It is the last time we shall be walking with Bapu. It was an agonizing walk for all the thousands who silently watched the procession go by Many thousands more frantically besieged the open truck carrying the flower-wreathed body, weeping bitterly, trying once again to touch Bapu's feet. It was impossible to take even a short step forward without being crushed from all sides. The procession left Birla House in the morning. It was evening when it reached the cremation ground a distance of about three miles. I realized as we inched our way along with difficulty that I was in the midst of something more than a grieving multitude. This was even more than the funeral procession of India's most beloved leader. I was among human beings for whom walking with Bapu had had a profound significance for they had walked with him over the rough and smooth of much of India's recent history. They could not now resign themselves to the fact that he who had led them over many arduous paths was never going to walk with them again. Bapu's slight figure had walked, staff in hand, over a large part of India. To walk is to make slow progress. It is to think with clarity and to notice with heightened awareness all that is around you, from the small insects that cross your path to the horizons in the distance. To walk is the way of the pilgrim, and for Bapu, every walk had been a pilgrimage, the dedication of the body in preparation for the spirit's sacrifice. It was no accident that he had chosen to walk. To walk, moreover, was often the only way open to the average Indian. It required no vehicle but his own body and cost him nothing but his energy. Gandhiji took this simple necessity and sublimated it as he took so much that was obvious and commonplace and translated 
into a joyful drama. As the flames of the funeral pyre consumed Papu's body, we sat around it at some distance on the ground. Members of the diplomatic corps were there too, and in front of them all the Earl and Countess Mountbatten, seated cross-legged on the ground like the rest of us. Gandhiji had inspired heartfelt homage from the people whose government had so often made a prisoner of him. Some days after the funeral, a special train took Gandhiji's ashes to Allahabad, where, in accordance with Hindu practice, they were to be immersed in the Ganges. Mamu and other members of the family, together with Mountbatten's, were to fly to Allahabad to receive the train, and I was among those privileged to travel on it. The compartment containing the ashes was flower-bedecked and fragrant. The people in it, Gandhiji's relatives and the close followers who had served him all his life, sang bhajans most of the way. There was no weeping anymore, for his presence seemed to be among them amid the flowers, the songs and the verses from the Gita which he had loved most. At every station, huge lamenting crowds filled the platform and at times tried to storm the compartment containing the urn of ashes. And so, amid song and prayer and the homage of millions of his countrymen, the train reached Allahabad. It was a city that had seen the performance of the last rites of many members of my family. It seemed fitting that Bapu's ashes too should be brought here, for he had ruled their lives. The ashes were immersed in the Ganges, where a mammoth crowd had gathered on the bank, and afterwards we all went back to Delhi. From that time onwards, it seemed to me that Mamu's devotion to his work was almost religious in nature, though he did not like the word religion and did not consider that it could ever apply to him. His face took on a spiritual transparency like that of a monk. So must an apostle of Jesus have looked after his master's crucifixion, and so must he have taken upon himself the burden of the cross. Back in Delhi, I felt at sea. It was true that I had not worked with Gandhiji, gone to prison at his call, or made any sacrifice for my country's sake. That had been the work of a different generation. My sisters and I, and other young people like me, had been merely onlookers. But still, I felt at sea. And I think the reason was that my feeling of loss went deeper than consciousness. It was as if the continuity of a long process begun before my birth had suddenly snapped like a dry twig, leaving me entirely without a sense of direction. I had grown up within a magic circle, which now had melted away, leaving me unprotected. With an effort, I roused myself from my imaginings. Was I, after all, going to relegate my childhood and all that it represented to the realm of a dream? I had dreamed.
were my values so fragile had Bapu lived and died for nothing that I could so easily lose courage when he was no longer there? Millions of people would have been ordinary folk living their humdrum lives unperturbed but for him. He had come to disturb them profoundly, to jolt them out of indifference, to awaken them to one another's suffering and in so doing to make them reach for the stars. Those stars still beckon luminously. Bapu's ashes had been scattered over the Ganges, but what if he had gone? We were still there, young, strong and proud to bear his banner before us. Who among us dared lose heart when there was this work to be done? The curtain had hung down over a great drama, but another one was about to begin. Gandhi was dead, but his India would live on in his children. That was the death of Mahatma Gandhi by Nanantara Sagal. The story was excerpted from her memoir, Prison and Chocolate Cake. There were so many memorable lines in this story, but one that stays in the listener's mind is what Sarojini Naidu, who was governor of UP at that time, said her words, what is all the sniveling about? Would you rather wished he had died of decrypt old age or indigestion? This was the only death great enough for him. As we listen to this story, we also realize how much India has changed. It is not only the movement away from his ideals of democracy and secularism. Gandhi's killer is being celebrated as a hero by a sizable segment of political operatives. Societies change with time, but the replacement of inclusion and integration with hate and division is unhealthy and will be highly destructive in the long run. If you like this podcast, please write a review or give a rating. Indie Stories brings you writing that is not only the best in its class, but also a messenger for positive social change. I'll be back next week with another groundbreaking story. I am Surinder Deo saying goodbye.